Hello, welcome to Old Testament Studies, an unacademic modern history. My name is Nick, and my goal is to bring Old Testament scholarship from the ivory towers of academia to the common language of every podcast listener. I want to break down the technical conversations and methods of analyzing the Old Testament so that everyone can be involved in the academic conversations about what the Old Testament is, where it came from, and what its message is. Each episode, I want to look at the life and academic contributions of one modern Old Testament scholar to understand how their ideas developed and show their impact on our understanding of the Old Testament. So this week is John Toland. John Toland was born in 1670, according to his own autobiography. However, the rest of his early life is unclear. Some have claimed that he was the illegitimate son of an Irish priest, but we don't really know. In addition, his place of birth is unclear. Some have claimed that his birthplace was at Redcastle, Muff, Eskaheen, or even Londonderry. Tradition has it that it is Arda in the parish of Clamani, and one historian in the 1850s went to Donegal and found that several people with the surname Toland claimed that he was part of their family. Regardless of the city, it seems fairly clear that he is from Ireland, though the precise location is what is unclear. He was christened at the Roman Catholic Church as Janus Junius, and there are records of it in the school, which is at Redcastle near Moville. And apparently he was bullied for this name until the headmaster ordered him to be called John in order to stop the jokes. He was brought up Catholic, but at 16 broke from the church and became an ardent critic of it for a long time afterwards. We're going to touch a little bit upon his dislike of church tradition and the early church fathers in the second half of this podcast, and it will be clear why the most traditional of the denominations, being the Roman Catholic Church, did not suit his style. In 1687, Toland attended the College of Glasgow, which is today the University of Glasgow, and stayed there until 1690. He then went to the University of Edinburgh to obtain an M.A. Toland talks about getting into debates and demonstrations against the Pope and the Catholic Church during his time at Glasgow, but most scholars today question how true or at least accurate those accounts are. These things may have happened, but we also have to recognize that we only have Toland's statements, so we don't know how radical he actually was at that time or if he's exaggerating some of his stories. The reason Toland switched schools from Glasgow to Edinburgh is a matter of conjecture. Apparently, the principal of the college at Glasgow seemed to not know why Toland went to Edinburgh to obtain the degree either. And the Edinburgh MA degree was often granted at Glasgow to students who were not prepared to take the Oath of Allegiance. And with Toland's involvement in the Protestant dissenters movement at the time, this would explain why he would not want to take the oath. However, he might have also alienated himself from the college by teaching philosophy in the town of Glasgow, which is in violation of the rules of the college, and thereby drawing students away from the college. Anyhow, after Edinburgh, Toland got a scholarship from English dissenters to the University of Leiden to study with Frederick Spanheim the Younger. 
So he focused upon Hebrew and Greek as well as other ancient classical texts. And this focus on the original languages of the Bible was a prominent feature of Spanheim's work and will become a prominent feature of Tolan's work even in the future. After only a year in Leiden, in 1693, Tolan went to Oxford to work at the Bodleian Library on a text about the Irish. He then left Oxford for London in 1694, and there published his most famous work called Christianity Not Mysterious when he was 25 years old. Throughout his time at Oxford, he had gained a reputation for stirring up controversy and holding super unorthodox religious views. This penchant for getting into arguments and controversies continued throughout his life. So this book was first published anonymously, but later in the same year, Tolan put his name onto Christianity Not Mysterious. And soon after that, he traveled to Ireland, but unfortunately heard his name and his book being attacked in a church service. It was bad enough that his book was condemned by the Irish Parliament, and Tolan fled the country to avoid arrest. He tried to justify this work for the next five years, but eventually gave up and just stopped publishing it. After this, Tolan began getting involved in politics, and specifically the divine right of kings, and the succession questions circling from 1696 to 1700. Tolan began vocally supporting Harley, a Whig party member, and the head of the country coalition. Part of his support was because Harley was financially supporting Tolan, and Tolan was also hoping that Harley would provide him with a position in the government, especially once Harley became Secretary of State in 1704. In 1701, Tolan was selected as a secretary to the embassy in Hanover under Lord McCallsfield through the recommendation of Harley. He presented one of his political books and the Act of Settlement to Electress Sophia, who then introduced Tolan to the court in Berlin and her daughter, Sophie Charlotte, Queen of Prussia. The Queen apparently spent a significant amount of time walking and talking with Tolan and introduced him to many intellectuals and other members of the court. One of the people he corresponded with during this time was Leibniz, though neither of them appear to have thought very highly of the other's work. And in fact, in 1702, Tolan wrote letters to Serena, which was a refutation of Leibniz, and Leibniz also wrote individual letters to the Queen of Prussia, criticizing Tolan's writing. From 1701 to 1707, Tolan went to Hanover at least three times and continued to connect with thinkers in Hanover and Holland who would be his correspondents for much of his life. Tolan met Baron von Hohendorf, the chief lieutenant to Prince Eugene of Savoy, commander of the armies of the Austrian Habsburgs. After this meeting, Tolan was commissioned by Hohendorf to increase Prince Eugene's library of rare and clandestine works. Tolan was commissioned to write for Harley after he became Secretary of State in 1704, but he did not provide a permanent position for Tolan, despite many requests. On Tolan's third trip to Hanover in 1707, he went to Vienna, Prague, and Berlin, but then when he was returning to Holland on his way back to England in 1708, he found out that Harley had been forced out of office. So he stayed in Holland until 1710 when he learned that Harley was reinstated to a position in government. 
1711, Toland settled at Epsom in England with the support of his friend Harley. However, in March of 1711, Harley was almost killed in an assassination attempt, and people began spreading word that the assassin was a correspondent of Toland. So Toland tried to prove his loyalty to Harley, but was shut out, and he then wrote an angry work attacking Harley and his views in 1714. The book went through 10 printings in less than a year and helped him to have financial independence at least for a while. Following this work, Toland published additional political works before turning to biblical criticism and books about secret religions and philosophies. In the final years of his life, Toland received support from Irish benefactors like Robert Viscount Molesworth, and he lost the property that he had with the collapse of the South Sea Company in 1720. He then moved from London to Putney as his health began to decline, and he died in March 1722, so impoverished that no grave marker was placed at his burial site in the Putney churchyard. So, with that brief introduction to his life, let's take a quick break before jumping into his Old Testament work. Welcome back. So John Toland traveled in deist circles during his lifetime. He was focused upon reason and was adverse to anything that couldn't be understood and explained if the title of his famous work, Christianity Not Mysterious, didn't show that. So I want to develop his view in several ways. First is his questioning of the canon. Then his disregard for tradition and emphasis on the original language of the text. And finally, how his view of the New and Old Testaments changed his interpretation of Christianity, Judaism, and even Islam. So his questions of the canon. So Toland was concerned that certain ancient texts were treated as authentic, but really are not authentic. This is not only the Bible, but other ancient works as well. Toland claims that modern scholars should be able to justify why books are included in the Christian canon. He claims that the witness to the authenticity of the books is contradictory in the early church fathers, and in addition, he claims they are unreliable because they were just as superstitious and prejudicial as the modern era. That is, his modern era. So Toland wanted to test the books using text-critical techniques that the ancient church leaders did not have. He wanted to find the sources of true religion and remove the superstitious writings. For example, Toland focused on the origins of superstitions about immortality and claimed the Egyptians as the source of the belief. He then showed how the idea gained importance and the evil consequences of misunderstandings about its origin and proper role in society. So this is really his method for analyzing beliefs and the biblical text throughout his writings. You explain the origins of the idea 
And then that in turn will explain the later degenerations of that idea. So Tolan used the rules of interpretation that were used for classical texts generally. For example, he argued that classical writers used hyperbole to emphasize a natural event, and therefore biblical writers would do the same. Now, he stops a little short of applying this to the whole canon and says that the New Testament authors wrote in good sense and a natural style. So obviously, when we are talking about hyperbole, he is talking specifically about the Old Testament. As Tolan said, quote, The style of the Old Testament is extremely hyperbolic, even in the books that are written in prose, but especially in the poetical books, wonderfully magnificent, and this sometimes in the description of the most ordinary events. Thus a storm, for example, is often represented in such pompous terms as if the whole frame of nature had been convulsed and the universe on the point of disillusion. Everything great or beautiful or excellent in its kind is attributed to God or denominated from him. Everything, therefore, that's hyperbolic is not straight to be counted supernatural, nor what's only magnificent to be admired as miraculous. Besides, that whatever can be explained by ordinary means, anything whose phenomena are easily solved, and whereof the like has often happened elsewhere, will by no man who's not strongly prepossessed with the errors of his education be counted a miracle." End quote. So Tolan even claimed that less than one-third of the miracles in the Pentateuch are really miracles, and this proportion holds true throughout the entire Hebrew Bible. This doesn't mean that miracles don't happen at all, though. As Tolan states, quote, "...exceeding all human power, and which the laws of nature cannot perform by their ordinary operations, the miraculous action, therefore, must be something in itself intelligible and possible, though the manner of doing it be extraordinary, end quote. So because God created the laws of nature, he can move them on special occasions. Now, before you think that Tolan is trying to trash the Bible, he claims the opposite. Instead of trying to destroy the Bible, Tolan wants to save it. If you don't know which books are genuine and which texts are hyperbole, then you cannot know the Bible correctly. These criticisms are meant to get the most accurate books and understanding them the most correct way. The next point that I want to touch on dovetails with this, and it is Tolan's disregard for tradition. Tolan proposed a new divinity that provides modern readers with the authority to interpret the text. The reason for this authority of modern readers is that they have more knowledge that the previous generations did not have. Tolan's generation knew more about languages, philology, and history, as well as all the writings that happened up until their time. As Tolan stated, quote, I have always declared, I go not about to deny it, a sovereign contempt for most of the fathers, as well as for other material causes regarding their integrity, their knowledge, 
and certain other disqualifying qualifications. Not above three of the Greek fathers of the four first centuries, if I may strictly allow so many, knew anything of the original Hebrew, and the Latin fathers, no greater accepted, understood as little either of that or the original Greek. Yet, in spite of common sense, these must be the best interpreters of Scripture. Tis mere illusion, errant sophistry to say that the fathers have lived nearer than we to the times of the apostles. They are therefore better interpreters of Scripture. End quote. So if I can put these two points together, the early church fathers were confused on which books were canonical. They didn't interpret the text well, especially things like the hyperbole of the Old Testament with the exaggerated claims of miracles. In addition to the common occurrence of superstitious thinking, the early church fathers in general were ignorant of critical methods, the languages that the books were written in, and the fields of research that have emerged after their time. So the authority of interpretation rests upon modern scholars. This then leads to Tolan's reliance upon the original languages. Tolan wants absolute accuracy in reading the biblical text. So we have to make sure we have the correct text in the canon. Then we have to remove the traditional views based upon poor methods for reading, and now we must know the language as well. Every time Tola makes a point or answers a question, he looks at the Greek and Hebrew. In fact, he argues that we need to be proficient in the languages even beyond the text itself. So that is to say it is not just Koine Greek and Biblical Hebrew, but we also need to know Classical Greek and Mishnaic Hebrew used in the Talmud. Tolan advocated reading the Talmud because, though it is, quote, otherwise useless, give us no small light into the ancient rites and language, end quote. Tolan viewed the biblical text as, quote, a world of words to help our imagination like scaffolds for the convenience of the workmen, but which must be laid aside when the building is finished and not be mistaken for the pillars and foundation, end quote. So the words and meaning of the original must be understood clearly and not twisted, but the meaning is then drawn out of this scaffolding. So let's finally turn to the connection between the New and Old Testament, which will lead us to Christianity and Judaism in Tolan's day. So as we noted before, Tolan hates mystery and the unknown. This doesn't mean that miracles don't happen, but simply that philosophy and theology should be clear and reasonable. If you haven't made the connection to the law of nature, let me clarify. The Bible teaches pure, natural, and reasonable religion. As Tolan states, quote, nor is there any different rule to be followed in the interpretation of Scripture from what is common to all other books. End quote. Clearly, for Tolan, this doesn't mean that he dispenses with the Bible, as his deep study of the languages and concern for the inclusion of only the appropriate books shows. What it does mean for Tolan is that Christianity is not exclusive. 
That is to say, the law of Moses is true for Jews, as Jesus is for Gentiles. Tolan even goes to say that Muhammad is true for Muslims in this line of divinely inspired prophets. So all of these religions should, and do, teach the divine law of nature and righteous living if they are interpreted correctly. This is opposite of what some of our other deist scholars claimed. Many of them would say that the law of nature was found in the New Testament, but the Old Testament was twisted or wrong or corrupt in some way. However, Tolan says that the Old Testament is also the law of nature if it is understood correctly. His view goes even beyond supporting the text to supporting the current use of it in Jewish circles because the New Testament has not replaced the law of Moses for Jews. The point of the New Testament was to preach to heathens, not convert Jews. So, as long as Judaism, Christianity, and even Islam teach rational religion and the faith congruent with the law of nature, they are compatible and should not interfere with each other. So this is where I will leave us today. John Tolan was fairly radical in his day and even in Christian and Jewish circles today. He rejected traditional interpretations of the Bible and argued that the Bible should be studied deeply and each text in the canon must be proven to belong in the canon. Tolan also emphasized reading in the original languages to understand the correct meaning of each text. The framework of the law of nature in Toland took him to a unique position on monotheistic religions, where they are all valuable so long as they present rational doctrines in line with the law of nature. So, if you liked this episode, please rate and subscribe to it on whatever platform you are listening and tune in in two weeks for Samuel Shuckford. Thank you for listening to Old Testament Studies and Unacademic Modern History. If you'd like to contact me with episode ideas, questions, comments, or just deeper discussion about Old Testament or ancient Hebrew linguistics and scholarship, feel free to email me at modernoldtestamentstudies at gmail.com. Again, thanks for listening. Thank you.